Are you a 3CR subscriber? We really need our listeners to subscribe to the station. Call 03-9419-8377 or sign up online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined by Kirsten Dick, who is the author of Reichsrock, the international web of white power and neo-Nazi hate music. Thanks for joining us, Kirsten. Thanks for having me. I guess just to begin with, could you tell us a little bit about how you came to study white power music? I was doing my master's degree in ethnomusicology at York University, and this is like a shockingly long time ago for me, like 15 years ago. And... I was looking for a thesis topic. I was thinking about writing on American country music, discovered that everything that I wanted to say had already been written about and written about like way better than I could have ever written about it. So I was, you know, just kind of wandering the stacks in the library one afternoon, looking for anything that might jump out. And I found this giant book on country music. I was flipping through it and it had a couple sentences saying that the Ku Klux Klan in the American South had sponsored just a little bit of country music in the 1960s and had kind of sold it at county fairs or local jukeboxes, played it in some restaurants and stuff. And it never really went any further than that. And then the book just dropped it and went on. And, you know, those were the only two or three sentences in the whole book that touched on that. And I thought, like, well, wait a minute, that's huge. Country music gets this really bad rap for being racist. And there's a little bit of that, but it, you know, sometimes gets a worse reputation than it should. So, you know, I started poking around and I found that really nothing had been written or almost nothing, maybe two or three articles. And I thought, okay, here's something where I can actually start digging. So I started poking around on the actual websites that were selling this stuff. And that was how I got started. I'd always been interested in the Holocaust. I'd always been interested in music. And this topic sort of merged the two things for me. Was Johnny Rebel one of those artists you found in the book? Actually, his his album was, I believe, the one that was pictured in the little inset picture. And that was one of the names, one of the very first names that I went searching down in like 2007. One of the reasons I ask is because a few years ago, there was a gig organized by Blood Nonna in Melbourne, where we're recording and the pub owner treated the boys to some Johnny Rebel music as an intro before they performed. So yes, Johnny's known here as well. Yeah, and I think he and and a lot of those other country artists get a lot of attention 
because they were for better or for worse, they actually could play their instruments. Like Johnny Rebel was a Nashville session musician and, and he knew his way around a guitar. And so did some of the white power bands who played punk and metal and stuff. But then there were some who were pretty beginner as musicians and and it all gets mixed up together in in white power so there is sort of a special reverence for the white power musicians who were actual musicians i did experience a little bit of psychic damage reading the book just remembering some of the really bad white power music that i've heard over the years it just sort of came flooding back to me just very poorly played music (laughs) Yeah, I mean, as an ethnomusicologist, like you, you hesitate to say that something is bad. And, you know, like, it's all about cultural relativism, and you're supposed to reserve judgment and just analyze. But, you know, when you see the fans of the genre actually complaining about the bad quality, the bad sound quality, the bad musicianship, it's like, okay, they actually do hear what I'm hearing as well. I'm not going crazy. (laughs) Kirsten, you begin the book by examining a figure called Ian Stewart Donaldson. Can you explain who he was and why he was so important to white power music? For sure. He's probably the most famous white power musician to date. He he was British and he was playing primarily in the 1980s, kind of got his start on the scene in the very late 1970s. Like he was around when the when the Sex Pistols were around. His band actually opened for Susie and the Banshees at one point on one gig, but very quickly began to see that the neo-Nazi imagery that some of the punk bands, some of the mainstream artists at the time were playing with, like David Bowie and Susie Sue. Even the Rolling Stones every once in a while, you know, would wear neo, neo-Nazi or Nazi uniforms, like ironically or as some kind of a statement or a provocation. But Ian Stewart Donaldson and some of his friends saw this and thought, you know, we could actually take this, this sense of provocation, this sense of, you know, trying to stir up political outrage with this Nazi imagery that was popular with the punk movement. And we could actually do this. We could actually make this music political. So that's what he did. He started to ally himself with the actual far right in Britain and and very swiftly also the, the far right in continental Europe, especially in Germany, and later on in the US and Australia and pretty much everywhere that that we find it. He was he was making these links. And and he was in terms of punk music, he and his band Screwdriver were also pretty musically adept. It is much scratchier, much more sort of industrial sounding music, but they were making the same kind and the same quality of music as the punk music that was getting popular, really popular in the 70s and 80s. And so people wanted to listen to him and people came to his concerts and a lot of people were convinced by this and joined far right organizations or at least started to listen to 
far right music like his or make it in some cases. So so he was really influential in making connections among different movements. There's some evidence that he contacted actual former Nazi soldiers, like potential war criminals from Germany who were still living in Germany in the 80s and was making contact with them and stuff. And and he was doing all of this organizing. And he died very suddenly in a car accident in the early 1990s. And after that, just became this martyr figure with all of these conspiracy theories suggesting that the government, the British government had killed him or like conspiracy theories suggesting that the Jews had orchestrated his death. I mean, in reality, when you hear people talk about his life, they talked about how he didn't have very much money and how his car had been on its last legs. And it looks like things just went wrong in his car to me when I look at the evidence and that because of technical malfunctions, the car crashed, but it, you know, I guess we'll never know. Maybe he was a bit of a screwy driver. Perhaps, perhaps, Mm. yeah. That's who he was. Several Australians played with Ian at various stages and you do examine the scene in Australia. What did you discover when you looked at it? So I, I certainly am not an expert on the Australian scene, you guys would probably know a lot more about it because you were in, you know, seeing it, seeing parts of it firsthand. It is definitely something that is more than a footnote. It's really important. And yet globally, it's kind of a small part of a movement that is really Europe-based and the the movement was you know for for a while also heavily involved or i guess heavily represented in north america especially because of resistance records and george birdie but the european scene has kind of always been the biggest part of of the movement kind of the heart of it but yeah i know that a lot of musicians went back and forth between britain and australia and certainly that there were members of screwdriver who were australian and played with ian stewart donaldson during his lifetime and that there are some australian bands who were quite are are quite popular still with the worldwide movement. Some of them have been fairly successful within that niche market. Kirsten, you mentioned the alliances and connections that Donaldson forged with political forces. I was wondering, could you speak a little more broadly about how the movement and white power music interact with each other? Like how do those alliances manifest? That's a thing that has changed a lot as the technology around music has changed. And those of us who are, you know, like me, starting to get a bit older have probably seen in our lifetimes quite a few different types of music technology for sale. You know, when I was a really little kid, you could still get, you know, the very tail end of like Betamax and 8-track tapes and you could still buy LPs and cassette tapes. And very quickly during my childhood, we got CDs. And that was really where the white power music movement started selling a lot. That really, that tail end of the LP 
era and then CDs. They sold a ton of CDs. And so for a while in the 90s, they were really funding. The, the sales of CDs were funding a lot of the activities of the actual political movements or you know political organizations like in the US the National Alliance and the National Vanguard bought resistance records and so you know from the late 90s and into the early 2000s resistance records profits were going straight into the National Alliance in the UK you know the the British movement and some of the other right wing organizations were really involved with music Actually, there was a white power musician, kind of a an acoustic folk style singer songwriter named Frank Renneke, who actually ran for president on the NPD National Democratic Party Deutschland's ticket. At one point, he you know got nowhere, but but they ran him for president. So it depends on the country and it depends on the era. I think. Now that law enforcement agencies are much more attuned to what they're doing, they're they're much more aware and they're watching out for white power music. So, you know, it's hard for them to have concerts that they advertise openly in most countries. So that limits some of the money making potential, although concerts still make a lot of money, just not widely advertised. And it's really easy to pirate music online. So one person buys a CD, uploads it to the internet, and everybody suddenly has access to it for free. That limits the money-making potential, especially of the recordings. So it's not as lucrative as it used to be. The The concerts and festivals still are a thing, though, that, that pour money into some of these movements. And that's particularly the case in Eastern Europe, where the governments might not be quite as concerned about white power musicians. And Russia has been a hotbed for decades, right? And that's, you know, kind of partially fueling the way that the movement has changed its views on Slavic people. Under Hitler, they thought that they were subhuman. And now it's this massive part and and very healthy, well-represented part of the neo-Nazi and white power movement worldwide. So in large part, it's the money that's made by this music that is funding organizations. That's that's a big part of how they interact. But also I think now that there isn't as much money in it, some of the music that people are making is just people who really believe in this stuff, who just want to make music and enjoy making music. And we're getting some like electronic fash wave music and stuff like that. Far right hip hop music, which I never thought I'd see, but it's a thing. And that kind of stuff as well that may not be as much affiliated with actual movements, but still kind of supports them ideologically. So it runs the gamut. You're listening to Yerna Passaran on 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're currently talking to Dr. Kirsten Dick about white power music. But before we get back to the interview, just a note that it is subscriber drive here on 3CR. And if you think that this is the sort of uh, thing that you would like to support the production of, you can head over to 3cr.org.au slash subscribe and make yourself a subscriber. 
We really appreciate all of the support. All right, back to the interview. Reading about the the white power hip hop in the book, the the mention of it, I also never thought I would see the day. How how do they square that circle of something that would traditionally have been taboo in the white power scene? Yeah, it's. I mean, the thing is, rock and roll was the same thing, mm. right? In the 1950s, and th- there are all these crazy video recordings that you can find of you know members of the Alabama White Citizens Council saying that rock and roll is going to drive our children down to the level with a, you know, N-bomb. When you got to the era of punk and heavy metal, it was still rock music. It was still heavily African-American influenced, but the markers of African-Americanness a lot of the time had been stripped out of the music. So a lot of the complex polyrhythms that you would see in African music, a lot of the instrumentation that you might have seen in African music was gone, right? So even though the reality was that it was heavily African-American based, that's not what it meant to people anymore. And I think it's not an accident that most of the white power hip hop that we're seeing now is coming out of Germany and Eastern Europe, Russia, especially Russia and Germany. And those are places where hip hop didn't develop, right? Hip hop developed in like New York and Los Angeles in this context of America's racial powder keg. Not to say that Germany and Russia don't have their own racial powder kegs, but the significance of hip hop music to Americans is that it kind of reflects something about our racial struggles. Whereas in those other cultures, that recedes into the background a little bit. It's not that they don't know about that history. It's not that they don't know it's an African-American style of music. But it's the that doesn't matter as much anymore. Kirsten, in relation to the waning fortunes of the white power movement or perhaps being in an ebb at the moment, there has been government scrutiny and police prosecution. And it was a couple of years ago in Victoria that a gig was announced by one of these groups and there was frustration expressed on the part of authorities and the public that the they couldn't act in order to prevent this gig from going ahead. And subsequently, there's been a bill passed in the state government outlawing the public display of swastikas and that's something that other state governments in Australia are considering with a view, it seems, to stopping neo-Nazi gigs from going ahead. I was wondering if you could comment on how governments have responded to the white power music in Europe and what effect do you think the various laws that prohibit the display of the the public display of the swastika, what effect, if any, that's had on the movement's fortune? That's a really good question. Of course, different European countries have reacted in really different ways. Probably the strictest regulations, the strictest legislation has come out of Germany for fairly obvious reasons. It's prohibited to display the swastika except for academic research purposes in Germany. And any hint, any whiff of a neo-Nazi concert in Germany is going to be followed up by authorities who are you know, very concerned And yet Germany is still probably the biggest white power music scene in the world. It's still 
the former home of the Third Reich. And there certainly is a population of Germans who are very proud of that, even though that's not what they might tell you when you put a news camera in their face, because it's illegal for them to say that. But in Germany, it's had the effect of driving the music underground. So it's kind of sold out of people's car trunks. The parties happen in people's basements. Some of the time, they are able to also arrange larger concerts. And there are, you know, rumors of concerts, you know, with four-figure crowds and stuff like that. But of course, it's rumor because we're not able to really research it because everything is underground. Other countries have had slightly less restrictive laws. Britain certainly would go after them for instigating violence or urging violence. And and France would, would be the same thing. And then it ranges all the way to countries, like I said, like like Russia, where there just isn't legislation at all, and they just do whatever they want. And I'm sad to say that I did see some of this also in Ukraine, where I used to live, and I love Ukraine. And I didn't see the same level of racism in Ukraine as I saw in Russia in the four months, five months when I lived in Russia. But I saw a little bit of it. And Hungary also is another one with Viktor Orban, where they're just not concerned with Nazism. And so these far right political movements are sort of allied with the regime of, of Viktor Orban in, in Hungary. And so in the in most of the European Union, I would say there's at least some sort of prohibition. But it, yeah, some, some of them are a lot more extreme than others. And then, you know, of course, you get to the US, where there's very little prohibition, but then there's cultural stigma, and we get this culture war and music that we thought would be totally taboo and never really out in the mainstream suddenly is a little bit more acceptable in the mainstream in some parts of the country than most of us would have imagined 10 years ago because of our favorite orange politician. I would have thought the Russians would be keen to denazify their punk scene. That's a whole other kettle of fish. If you if you want to get me started on the war in Russia and Ukraine, that has, <laughs> that has consumed my life in the last year, like, like I said, because I lived there, because I know a lot of people there, and it's very personal to me. But when Putin talks about denazification, he is not talking about Nazis. He is talking about getting rid of Ukrainian nationalism. That's what that's what he's referring to. He wants to, he's equating Ukrainian nationalists with fascists, because in the Russian narrative, Russia was victorious over the Nazis in World War II. And basically anybody who is opposed to Russia in that narrative becomes a fascist. So in that way, the United States becomes a fascist state. And and he's playing to his base inside Russia. He's not using this rhetoric for us outside. So it seems really counterintuitive to most of us, but we have to remember that they've been saturated with all this rhetoric about the enemy is the fascist and the fascist is the enemy. So anybody who is is our enemy is obviously a fascist. And then when he says that all of these Ukrainians who are opposed to us are fascists, 
well, he's not actually talking about Ukrainian neo-Nazis. And the historian Timothy Snyder did a really excellent series of lectures for Yale University in the fall, in fall 2022, about Ukrainian history. And he really made this point very eloquently that, that Putin is making this Nazi argument for his base and that it doesn't really have all that much to do with Nazis. And the reason we know that is because Putin is doing nothing about the actual Nazis in Russia and he's doing nothing about the actual Nazis in Ukraine. He doesn't, he doesn't care about that. Absolutely. Kirsten, I was wondering, could you speak a little bit about the connections between the white power music scene and real world violence? There's a lot. There, there's a lot, especially considering actually how small this music scene has been. We're talking, as far as I know, like a thousand, two thousand, three thousand bands or something like that. Not huge, and that's over the course of thirty or forty years. And there have been tons of low-level violent events that have been, you know, beatings, non-fatal stabbings that kind of thing, street violence, and of course, like fights at punk concerts, fights at heavy metal concerts, fights outside of political protests and stuff. And, you know, that stuff is almost below the radar of most of the trackers, unless there is some kind of news story about it. But there have also been really high level violent events, mass murders and things like that. There was a musician named Wade Michael Page, He's American, he's from Milwaukee, and he'd been involved in a few white power bands that had gotten a fair amount of attention and had been, you know, a hammerskin nation organizer and stuff. And he massacred, I think, nine people at a Sikh temple. There was Anders Bering Breivik in Norway who killed... Yeah, he killed a bunch of kids basically at a left-wing summer camp on an island outside of Oslo, as well as bombing a government building in Oslo as a distraction. I think he killed 77 people, something like that. Just a, a whole string of murders, and sometimes it's even murders within the white power movement. So there were some Norwegian black metal musicians who like murdered each other in the early 90s. One of them burned down a 12th century stave church, the Norwegian obviously like protected landmark. It's 800 years old and he thought in the name of getting rid of Judeo-Christianity he would just torch the whole thing and then he put a photo of the burned building on the cover of one of his records and gave the record the title Aske, meaning ashes, in, in Norwegian. So yeah, there's there's a lot for a movement that has had relatively few, I won't say few, but relatively few people in it. There's been a pretty high body count. One of the cases you mentioned in the book are, are the National Socialist underground murders that uh, occurred. Could you tell us what the connection between that and the, the white power music scene was or what it was believed to be? So what happened was, I, I'm going to probably mess up my dates because I haven't been researching this in a, in a minute, but in the early 2000s, between 2006 and 2008 or so, there was a group in Germany who killed fairly randomly, a bunch of Turkish immigrants, as well as a police officer. And they would walk into these mostly Turkish-run or immigrant-run 
restaurants that sell Döner Kebab, which is basically Germany's national snack food at this point. Um, and they would just gun down the people behind the counters. And that was that was their MO. And then the police caught on to them and a bunch of them committed suicide and tried to burn down the house they'd been living in and didn't didn't burn all the documents, unfortunately, for the people who had not committed suicide in the movement. But fortunately for the rest of us, we actually know what happened now. But the connection to white power music is that it appears that at least one white power band, uh, at least one white power musician who's fairly notorious, um, Daniel Giese, had actually written a song describing some of these murders that came out a year before the authorities released any information about them to the public. So it appears that he was aware of what was going on and knew who was doing it and why it was happening before before the public knew. So he probably had some insider information into the National Socialist underground. Of course, he's keeping his mouth shut, as anybody would in the German system at the moment, but, but that's what it looks like. Speaking of National Socialism, Kirsten, there's been several tours recently by black metal bands uh, to Australia that have run into difficulties because of their seemingly very close relationship to national socialist black metal. And yet some performers uh, in this genre aren't necessarily explicit about their political commitments. So I'm wondering, in reference to black metal in particular, maybe metal generally, can you comment on the ways in which white power musicians sometimes attempt to obscure or otherwise disguise their underlying political commitments? Yeah, um, so so there's a number of ways that they do that, but I should say, first of all, that uh, political belief and political ideology is a continuum. And so, yeah, you get the Ian Stewart Donaldsons and the Daniel Gieses and, and the people who are totally committed. They're in all the way. They're really involved with white power terrorism in some cases, white power organizing. But you also get the people who are like, their friends who come to their gigs, but aren't maybe going to pick up a gun. Um, and then you get people who are friends of those guys who kind of have some sympathies toward the extreme right, but wouldn't necessarily go to something that was labeled white power or neo-Nazi, but you know, would definitely vote for a Donald Trump or a Viktor Orban and in private might kind of say that Hitler had some good ideas. And so you get musicians who are all over that spectrum. It's super hard to draw a line where white power music ends and mainstream music starts. So you do get these sort of controversial borderline cases uh, like one of the one of them is Ultima Tula the Swedish group that's been really popular doing Swedish nationalist rock music and they keep saying oh we had nothing to do with neo-nazi organizations and different journalists keep you know alleging things and nobody seems to be able to produce any really hard and fast evidence on either side it's very clear that they kind of flirted at one point with neo-Nazi ideology, and they definitely knew some people, but they never really sang about it in their music. But one of the reasons it's so hard to tell with Ultima Tula is that they were talking about Vikings most of the time. 
um, or talking about history. And that is one of the prime ways that even the most virulent, most racist white power bands will cover what they're saying is, you know, oh, I'm just talking about history. I'm just talking about the Vikings, you know, and then they talk about the Vikings getting invaded by the foreigner who's stealing their land. And it's like, wait a minute, that didn't happen. This isn't actually about history. This bears no resemblance to history, but all they, you know, all they have to say is, oh, sorry, we got it wrong. You know, it's just a song. It's just my artistic license. Um, So one of the ways they do it is by setting their songs in the past, this kind of imagined past that didn't really exist. Another way that they do it is by focusing on like Scandinavian mythology or Slavic mythology, these pre-Christian European uh, religions that they see as being more purely white um, and not sort of what, as they would see it, you know, infested or infected with Judaism, the way Christianity is. Um, So, and again, there, it's really hard to tell. Are you just looking at somebody who is really into Norse paganism? Are you just looking at somebody who's actually practicing revival Slavic paganism? Or are you looking at somebody who's a neo-Nazi and using these, pagan religious themes to cover. So those are those are some of the ways that they do it, but there are also some fast wave songs that I've heard where they just, you know, sort of talk about, you know, we're we're fighting for our kind and that's as far as it ever gets into, you know, they never name the enemy, they never drop any swear words. It's just it's all very kind of softballed in terms of the rhetoric and you'd have to talk to them with the camera off before they start to tell you what they really think. One of the themes in the book or major themes it seems in the book Kirsten is at various points you insist on the importance of understanding the white power music and and performance and its relationship to the mainstream it shouldn't be regarded as being so I don't know bizarre that it shouldn't be counted. Can you I know in your, your examination of the various national contexts for the movements and, and musicians you describe, you go to some uh, trouble to discuss the national context. Can you elaborate a little more on why you think anyone should be paying attention, why this uh, phenomenon is important and what its relationship is to, uh, let's say, more mainstream forms of racism and discrimination? I think that the... The mainstream music industry and, you know, unfortunately, I I think also academics who study pop music have worked really hard since like about the 1960s or 1970s to try to separate off mainstream music from racist music. You know, and we get these narratives that like rock and roll is about liberation and they talk about the 1960s and, you know, Bob Dylan and Joan Baez and, you know, Woodstock 1969 and fighting for the end of the Vietnam War and stuff. And that is true, right? Rock music in that particular context, you know, did a lot to integrate, you know, racially integrate to end the Vietnam War and stuff like that. But that's not the whole that's not the whole picture. There's always been the flip side of that. There's always been a more reactionary side to this music. There's always been 
overlap. And one of the things, like, for example, I, I mentioned Ian Stewart Donaldson opening up for Susie and the Banshees. Susie and the Banshees wearing a Nazi swastika armband, but not being seen as really Nazi. It's a question in my mind, why? Like, why would that be seen as just a provocation? Why would that be seen as not being real? Just because they didn't sing about it in the lyrics, you know, when obviously they were in the same context and they knew people who did see themselves as real Nazis and they didn't seem to protest it too much. So, so that's one way. And uh, like, like I said, like even the, you know, the Rolling Stones, David Bowie, um, some of the others in that scene would occasionally flirt with Nazi imagery. Um, Eric Clapton at one point was caught on camera saying that we needed to keep Britain white. And Henry Rollins gave an interview to VH1. They were doing a documentary about white power music. And he was, he was saying that he still had his screwdriver records from back when, you know, before Ian Stewart Donaldson really joined the, the white power movement, that he still had his, you know, original 1970s screwdriver records that he couldn't force himself to throw them out because he remembered what they used to be before they got bad, you know, in his, in his reckoning. And I was just thinking, you know, like Henry Rollins came up listening to screwdriver, Henry Rollins of, of black flag, who's this, you know, anti-racist activist, but he still can't throw away his, his screwdriver records. There's just so much more overlap there than, a lot of music textbooks, a lot of music magazines would like us to to admit. I actually published a separate article about this. It was in it was just in an edited collection, and I doubt there were very many copies published of it. But but specifically about this phenomenon because it is really imperative to me if you want to understand this music that you have to understand that it you can't coordinate it off from the rest of pop music. You've made reference to how uh, Slavs fit within a white supremacist ideology, their racial status, the conflict or the war uh, between Ukraine and Russia um, has evidenced uh, on both sides there have been fascists and Nazis fighting and so on and so forth. There's all sorts of, uh, I guess, and on the other hand, I should add, the book uh, emphasises the transnational nature of this movement. Um, that would seem to create certain kinds of national and racial tensions between the various groups and their interpretations of white supremacist ideology. I guess a final question would be, what do you think are the strengths and weaknesses of this transnational movement and what kinds of transnational efforts, I suppose, to combat it do you think it uh, recommends? Um, That's a couple of questions. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Strengths and weaknesses, like... Obviously, I think one of the strengths of this ideology is that you can't disprove it. Yeah. Uh, so, so you can't falsify conspiracy theories. That's the th- like nobody will ever be able to watch all the Jews on the planet all the time to really prove that there's no Jewish world conspiracy. And so it forms this really convenient foil for anything that's going wrong in your life. And if you're one of those people who really needs to have a simple answer 
for why you're having problems. You know, why are the police after me? Why don't I have a job? Why don't I have a girlfriend? Why didn't I pass my college classes? Um, all, all of all of the things that are going wrong in your life can be traced back to this overarching conspiracy theory. And of course, if you look at the way the world really works, it doesn't really wor- work that way. But this narrative has such power to explain things for people who just want an explanation and for people who just want to feel like they fit in because of some innate thing about their biology. Like you don't have to do anything. You just have to be white and you're part of it and you feel like you're in it and you're some kind of elite because you understand the real insider knowledge that that the other people just don't get, you know? So it gives people without having to actually do the work of actually doing the research, becoming an expert in something, without having to actually go and get the super expensive university degrees, it lets people feel like they're experts and lets people feel like this elite insider knowledge that they have is something privileged. And so it makes people feel good, basically. Um, unfortunately, you know, the the drawback is, I hope, clear that it kills people. Um, the The rhetoric kills people. Um, and it's killed millions of people and seems to be poised to continue killing people. And a lot of people are not super fond of seeing their friends and loved ones killed. And it's going to be divisive and controversial and upsetting because it kills people and it hurts people. So, yeah, I mean, I could go way deeper than that, but but it really comes down to that. It makes some people feel good at the expense of other people, and that's the strength, and it's also the weakness. Um, In terms of how to combat it, I don't think that the strategy of trying to censor it away will work, but I also don't think that the strategy of not addressing it at all will work. So that sort of European Union model doesn't seem to be working. The German model just drives it underground, but the American model kind of just lets it flourish and doesn't do anything. And I think what's really required, one, is education, obviously, letting people know what the real causes of their suffering or their problems actually are. But then too, we have to care about people who are legitimately suffering. And I think one of the things that has gotten overlooked in the last 30 or 40 years is how a political order, a socio-political structure that has made a lot of people's lives better. You know, it's given us a lot of technology, smartphones, the ability to do a lot of things we couldn't do before. But it's also meant that a lot of people have lost their jobs. A lot of regions have become, you know, economic wastelands in countries across the West. And we haven't necessarily paid enough attention to that kind of suffering. And we have to care about it and help people solve their problems before they'll stop looking for easy explanations for why those problems exist. You know, and I, th- I think it is that commitment to ending people's suffering, that's the hard part. I mean, it's easy to sit people down in an anti-racist education program. It's a lot harder to give them a job that pays a living wage for the rest of their life.
Well, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, Dr. Kirsten Dick, thanks so much for joining us. The book is Rock's Rock, and uh, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Well, Andy, before we away, just one more note that a subscriber drive here on 3CR this week, and we're of the view that radio like that which you have just heard is not available elsewhere on the airwaves. So if that's the sort of thing that you want to support, why not consider becoming a subscriber to 3CR by heading over to 3cr.org.au slash subscribe. All right, we'll catch you next week. See you then. and support Radical Radio. Call 03-9419-8377 or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe.